I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster and this is a super special episode. I'm really excited to bring you this interview with author Kit Ham whose book Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender has been out for a few months. As soon as I got it, I was just like, well, as soon as I heard about the book, I was like, I got to read this. And as soon as I read this, I was like, I got to see if Kit will come on the podcast. I was so excited that they did. And I'm not going to introduce them or the book because that all happens in the interview, which you're about to hear. So please enjoy. Okay, so I'm joined today by Kit Ham, the author of Before We Were Trans. Thank you so much for joining me, Kit. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I mean, just like as a fan, but also I'm really excited to have you talk so that the listeners of this podcast can learn from you all the stuff that you talk about in your book. Can you explain the premise of your book? So Before We Were Trans is a global history of gender nonconformity, and it tells the stories of people who don't necessarily fit into modern and or Western trans categories but who do show us that gender has always been something that people have been disrupting and challenging. It's never been something that's fixed or uncontested or tied to the body. And so it doesn't necessarily tell us the story of trans people, but it tells us the story of trans history. And that I think is a really important distinction that the book tries to make. And I think that message about gender, that it's never been something that we can't fight against and challenge and reshape ourselves is something that hopefully can be liberating to everyone, trans or not. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's such an important distinction that it is like when I went to read the book at first, I was expecting it to be one of those books. It's like this chapter is about this person and this chapter is, but it's not like it's you have examples of people, but it's very much about the history of just the trans experience and gender. Yeah. And that is exactly what I didn't want to write. I think we do, we have a few of those books now, right? Not to say that they're not incredibly valuable and this book wouldn't exist without books like that. Um, But I really, I wanted to move away from the idea that trans history is a, a history of individual exceptional people and instead write a book that was not necessarily always about individuals, but that was about, really about the things that make people say, that's not trans history, it's just... Mm-hmm. Dot, dot, dot. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's not trans history. It's just the history of women making their way in a patriarchal society. Okay, okay. Or, pants. Yeah. Like, can we talk about women who wear pants? Because you talk about that in the book, and it's been kind of coincidentally, it's become a recurring theme this season on my podcast. I've just had so many, several stories of women who, for one reason or another, 
ended up wearing pants and society was just like, what is the, anyway, just talk about that, please. Because you talk about that in the book and it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, there are some story, plenty of stories in my book of people going absolutely mad about women or people assigned female at birth wearing the wrong clothes. So, and that includes both pants. It also includes wearing the wrong hat. People are very, very angry about the idea of women or AFAB people wearing hats. Um, and this is particularly, the stories I tell are predominantly from um, Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, which was a period when to change your clothes was to change your sex. Mm. So you get this complete panic about people changing their sex everywhere in the early 17th century. They don't mean people doing anything to their bodies. They mean people wearing the wrong sort of hat or wearing trousers or wearing um, hairstyles that were considered more masculine or for men and people assigned male at birth, having hairstyles that were considered more feminine, wearing earrings in both ears. And it's really important, I think, to say that the history of gender non-conforming fashion is trans history, because while we might now think of um, clothing as just like a costume that we put on over our essential self and it doesn't change anything about who we are inside, that's not always how people have thought of it. Mm -hmm. It's in fact been a really important kind of thing that makes up our sex or our gender in the past. Can you talk about, um, so performances like like the exact era and place and time you're talking about, there's so much like Shakespeare's plays and stuff where it's like, oh, the, well, first of all, it's men playing women, but a lot of times those women characters are then disguised as men. Um, and then getting into the restoration of women playing those roles. And then the whole, like the eroticism of women in pants and stuff. So like how it gets into like society was like, oh my God, they're wearing the wrong kind of hat. But then the plays are like, oh, ho, ho, we're like playing around with gender here. Yeah, exactly. And of course, um, as your listeners will know, one of the things that is very exciting for early modern society about the idea of a woman or an AFAB person wearing trousers is they get to see their legs. And that's something that if they were wearing skirts, you would not have the opportunity to do. So suddenly it's very sexy and it's very exciting. And that's exactly why, as you say, in the restoration, we get those breeches roles because, oh, we've got women on stage now. What can we do with them? I know we can make them dress up as men for part of the plot. So we're going to write lots and lots of plays where women have to dress up as men and then conveniently have to show us their legs. Yeah. Um, but what I find really interesting about this history of onstage gender nonconformity as well is that that is also something that changes the way people think about gender, right? So when we get um, anti-theatrical writers in this period complaining about the theatre, one of the things they're complaining about is the idea that people can be transformed into another gender by virtue of their clothing. So that you get people writing about beautiful boys transformed into women by their fashion, by their clothing. Um, and so there's not only just kind of dressing up going on on the stage, there's actually a kind of gender transformation going on on the stage, which is making some people very, very worried. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what's funny about it, one of the figures I talked about, I'm sure you know about them, um, is Catalina de Arauso, is somebody we've talked about on the podcast. And so what I found so funny about that story is like, we could talk about like Catalina as a separate thing, but like in the 1940s, there was this movie made about that story. And it was basically an excuse that was this Mexican actress, Maria Felix, who was famous for looking amazing in pants. And they were just like, we need to find more movies where we can put Maria Felix <laughs> in pants. So it was like very much like, let's cast her as Catalina de Arauzo. So like, even like in the 20th century, it was just like, let's put some women in pants. It's sexy. So it's like, there's that in addition to kind of the gender, I don't know, not confusion, but it's, I just find it so interesting to be like, women can't wear pants except on stage because that's erotic, like. <laughs> Except when we want to objectify them, basically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's such a wild thing. I, I don't know, it's, it was funny to me, like what the self-perpetuating loop might be, like other figures I was looking at, who, I don't know, like Christina of Sweden, for instance, mm -hmm. who was also, I, who I don't think you mentioned in the book, but also had like lots of gender. Well, and there's the intersex thing as well, which you talk about in the book a bit as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did. the reason I didn't talk about Christina of Sweden is precisely because I think people have talked about them. And I was really keen to tell um, stories of some people people have heard of, um, but often people who pe um, readers might not necessarily have come across and bring to light some new stories, expand our views of what queer and trans history look like. Um, but the insex history and the overlap between trans history, that was something I was really keen to write about, because a lot of the histories in the book are histories that overlap between categories. So they're histories that 
are both intersex history and trans history, for example, or both gay history and trans history. Um, and I think even more so than with gay history, with intersex history, trans people have a real obligation not to just claim that history for ourselves and erase its intersex dimensions, because there's a thing that trans people do when we're talking about intersex people, where we kind of instrumentalize them to prove the validity of our own identities, right? Like if sex isn't binary, obviously gender isn't binary, but that's not often something that actually involves giving back to intersex people or asking what we can do for intersex people. Instead, we're just kind of taking from them um, to be able to make a political point and sometimes using quite harmful language. Um, if we use the language of kind of people not developing fully or people's um, genders needing correcting through surgery, that kind of rhetoric can be quite actively harmful to the causes that intersex people are fighting for. So it was really important for me to not erase the intersex dimensions of trans history and um, to tell stories of people who have are part of both intersex and trans history, who, for example, my favorite story, um, and the one that I tell um, at most length in the intersex history chapter of the book is a person who lived as sometimes Thomas and sometimes Thomasine Hall in um, the early 17th century colony of Virginia um, in North America, um, and who is on legal record as saying in a court of law, I am both man and woman is an incredibly cool thing for the early 17th century. But what they mean when they say that is both, I sometimes live as a man and I sometimes live as a woman, and I have an intersex body. And it's really important to emphasize that they are meaning both of those things. This is intersex history and trans history. Well, and that's the thing too. So just like in the, the researching that I've been doing, and I'm very much just like social history of like messy women. <laughs> that's That's where I'm coming at this from. But the no. season, sorry, my cat is like, I warned you. And like, she's here and she has got I things I can see to her say. tail. Yep, Hello, yep. cat. <laughs> um, anyway, so like what I've been, just this season, I've happened upon several stories where I'm just like, oh, where I've just been learning for the first time about this trans history, intersex history, like just kind of this, um, what the intersection of all these things is. And sometimes, like you said, it's like, oh, it's just this. So, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, it's just a woman who wore pants dressed like a man for her whole life and <laughs> presented as a man but like but that's that's just a woman that's just how you make your way in the world and sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not what I love about your book and where I know I'm going to like return to it again for future episodes where I just need to get the language and just wrap my head around it it's so much of the history and this is what you're really looking at is like there's somebody who challenges gender norms and the people they're not using the vocabulary we use today and the people around them are understanding it in their own culture. So it's kind of like, is this a lesbian? Is this like the word they would use is hermaphrodite? Like, is this, you know, so for me, looking at the story, I'm just like, how do I even tell this story today? Like, what was this person's identity? Yeah. And that was something I was really, I'm really, really glad that you found that helpful because that was one of the most important things for me in writing this book was to find ways to talk about people on their own terms rather than on our modern mm -hmm. and often Western terms. Um, because I think that's what showing respect to people in the past means, right? It means seeing them as they understood themselves. I don't know. If, have you seen the film Framing Agnes? No, what's that? Um, it's a fantastic um, trans history film um, made by Morgan M. Page and Zachary Drucker, um, which tells the story of a um, bunch of trans people who were treated um, at the um, Johns Hopkins Hospital in the mid, um, I think it's Johns Hopkins, can't remember, um, in the mid 20th century. And um, one of one of the things that really, many things stood out to me from that film, but one of the things that really stood out to me was the amazing trans historian Jules Gilpeterson says at one point in the film, our job is not to act as if we know people in the past better than they knew themselves. And I find that a really powerful principle for doing history. Right. It's so easy to think, oh, you just didn't have the language for this. Mm -hmm. But that's not what treating someone with respect and respecting their humanity and their autonomy and their agency means. Right. Yeah. No. And that's so like even for like, again, like to bring it back just to this podcast, like this season, when I'm looking at some of these figures like Catalina de Arraso, I was just like, mm -hmm. what pronouns do I use? Mm -hmm. And so I was looking, I was listening to other podcasts and other books. And what I landed on was like, her biography, she says like, I, Doña Catalina de Arroso. So I'm like, okay, she's saying like, I'm just going to go with she, her, because like, I have to make a judgment call here. But then it's like, I was thinking about this today. 
So figures like that, who you're like, okay, well, that's the the gender that they use themselves in their memoir, but it's like, but they're writing the memoir for public consumption. And it's a lot easier to sell books when you're like, oh, I'm a nun who became this thing, but really I'm a woman transgressing. So it's like, it's not her diary. You know, it's like, this is how she's selling her story for public consumption. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the really, it's kind of historically tricky things about doing trans history is that so much of the evidence we have for gender non-conforming lives is evidence that has been shaped for a particular audience. So maybe it's legal testimony where there's a lot at stake, depending on what you say. Um, maybe it's medical testimony where you're shaping your narrative. You know, that's what that's where we got the dominance of the born in the wrong body narrative, right? Is one trans person said it and then and they realized that was a great way to get medical treatment. And then every other trans person said it as well. And then the doctors went, ha, huh, they're all saying that. This must be what it means to be really trans. We're going to put that on the diagnostic criteria. And that's how it happens. Um, and yes, and people like Catalina writing memoirs for public consumption, um, the stakes are not the same as they would be if you were just writing um, for yourself, as you say. Um, and so the decision I made around pronouns in the book was predominantly to use they them pronouns for everyone and that is not because i think the vast majority of those people use they them pronouns during their lives but it is because i you know as you know um we use they them both as a actively gender neutral pronoun like i use it myself because i'm not male or female and so that's the right pronoun for me but also as a passively gender neutral pronoun just to say you are a person who's gender I don't know who I've yeah. walked past on the street. And, and and so I do think it's useful to use it for people in the past whose gender subjectivity I can't know. But that is that is a really conscious choice. And I think the other important thing about doing this history is owning our conscious choices and thinking them through, right? And not just not just thinking that pronouns are an uncontroversial or easy choice to make as mm-hmm. people doing history. Yeah. Well, and then that really intersects with another really important part of your book, which is the anti-racist angle of it. Like trying to, like, you're very clear. I think it's in the prologue just saying like, I'm coming from this like Western culture, but I'm looking at like the book is really, I want to emphasize too, to the listeners, like this book is, we've been talking about figures, you know, from the podcast who are like largely European, but like the book is like a global history. So you're looking at different cultures, not just European. So how, how did you approach that? Yeah, so the book is a global history. I write about um, people from West Africa, people from East Asia, people from North American cultures that are not um, white cultures. And that decision to write a global history was something that I really wrestled with because it's very easy for white trans people to write badly and appropriately about cultures that aren't our own, something that we do a lot, um, especially white non-binary people do a lot, is much like I was talking about with intersex people, we tokenize and instrumentalize the idea of people from cultures that aren't our own who don't fit into Western gender binaries in order to prove the validity of our own genders. So like my gender is obviously valid because two spirit people exist or hijab exist. Um, That's a dynamic of exploitation. That's just taking without asking what we can give back. And so I was really keen to avoid doing that, to pay as much attention as I could to understanding people from cultures that weren't my own on own cultural terms, not imposing my own cultural lens. Um, And I was also really keen to use the opportunity I had in the book to emphasize the impact of European colonialism on gender nonconformity in many, many cultures, the way that it has restricted and reshaped gender nonconformity in many places. And also to emphasize the fact that both the gender binary and the sex binary, which I think is less acknowledged, um, are colonialist and in the case of sex, eugenicist constructs, right? That the idea that we have um, in our contemporary Western culture that there are only two sexes comes directly out of racist thought, which presented the idea that it was white people whose bodies were most perfectly divided into male and female. And so using that platform that I had in the book to also make those points really clear was something that I also decided to do to try and make the case for how important it is to do anti-racist trans history in that respect. 
Well, and I think that brings us also to another topic that I really wanted to just have you talk about, which is Njinga, who I did, um, I think, two hours worth of podcasts talking about Njinga. And so there's, and that was the first story on my podcast I've encountered where I was like, oh, there's like some like gender stuff happening here. There's some like queer stuff happening here. And so just trying to figure like, how am I going to approach it? And you talk about, about Njinga and that culture. So can you just share a bit about what you say in the book about about them. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I, you know, I'm sure we could t- spend another two hours talking about Njinga's story, which is um, one of my favorites and really fascinating. Njinga is in the first chapter of the book, um, in which I talk about the relationship between gender and social role and the way that people having a particular social role can, in many social contexts, actually change the way that their society genders them and understands their gender, and sometimes the way that they understand their gender too. And so I talk about Njinga's experience as an experience where their decision to, um, yeah, for those um, who maybe haven't listened to earlier podcasts, they're a monarch um, of the kingdom of Ndongo in what's now Angola, West Africa. When They were assigned female at birth, but when they became monarch, they became king, not queen. And that decision to become king was shaped both by the dynamics of their own culture and also by the fact that at the point when they became monarch of Ndongo, they were required to negotiate with Portuguese colonizers, which was a very patriarchal Christian culture. And so styling yourself as king was also a really kind of um, advantageous thing to do in those very, very high stakes negotiations, negotiations about the integrity of their kingdom, about the welfare of their people, many of whom were being abducted and enslaved, and about the welfare of their family as well. You know, two of their sisters were abducted and held hostage by the Portuguese. One of them was murdered. Um, And so this is a decision about gender nonconformity, which is made in response to both their own cultural context and a new cultural context and the threat of European colonialism. And it was really important to me to make the point that the gendering of social roles um, and the way that we gender people differently, um, depending on their social role, is something that a lot of factors influence. You make it in in relation to a very, very specific social context um, and not just necessarily in relation to your own culture um, and Njinga's story I think really drives that home. Well and that reminds me too about just other people I've read about and we talked about in the podcast where I think Christine of Sweden was the same thing where it's like when a woman becomes monarch it's like well queen often means just like wife of king but if you're like well I am like Christina is often is described sometimes as king and then you even have someone like Elizabeth I, who is like, you know, I might have the body of a woman, but actually <laughs> deep down inside, I am a man. Like, Yeah, Elizabeth referring to themselves as king and as prince in speeches and then in the next sentence referring to themselves as queen. Um, and I think, you know, people often say, and I think your podcast does a really good job of not doing this, to be honest, but people um, in the wider world often say, oh, if you're saying that people can be gendered differently because of their social role, are you saying that there can be no powerful women in history ever? You know, are we saying that um, the moment someone takes on a role that is coded as masculine, they're not a woman anymore, so we never get powerful women? And that's not true, but it is true that someone, if you live in a society where power is gendered masculine, it does change the way that people's genders are understood when they take on power. And that's not something that we have to kind of like or agree with to acknowledge that it's true, right? And that... That's definitely the case with Elizabeth I, I think. Mm-hmm. No, I just think it's so fascinating that like so much of Western society now comes from like the British colonial era, which like followed Elizabeth's reign. And the fact that she was in like in some ways like challenging these gender norms, you know, it's just like she was, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And then the colonial ideology that, yeah, as you say, got kickstarted in Elizabeth's reign, absolutely enforced gender norms that... Elizabeth herself was not remotely following. Um, You're totally right. And with that said, I mean, there were a lot of gender norms that were also imposed on Elizabeth, like the idea of virginity being a great thing that Elizabeth should aspire to, kind of fashioned by men who didn't want her to marry the French king, the French prince, right? So Mm -hmm. um, not all all decisions that Elizabeth was, um, had perfect agency to make. Um, 
But you're totally right that there's a paradox there um, that something that came out of the reign of a quite gender non-conforming monarch ended up repressing so much gender non-conformity in other cultures. Well, and then I'm just I'm just thinking this through, like historically, then she was followed by the court of James, which had like all mm. kinds of queer history stuff happening. Can you talk about the how men, what is it? It's like how they, um, in that era, the more feminine you appeared, the more masculine you were, like that whole thing. Yeah, um, so it was incredibly fashionable to have a very feminine um, appearance, which was genuinely, outside of the court, understood as very feminine. So long, luxuriant hair, perfume, um, earrings in both ears, lace and flowers and puffed sleeves, beautiful, beautiful dress coming out of France and Italy and becoming fashionable in um, England. And what's really interesting about that is that within the court setting, that was normative masculinity. That was the height of masculinity outside of the court setting. That was effeminacy. That was gender nonconformity. That was, once again, changing your sex. And so you see how contingent the idea of gender is, right? Masculinity means a totally different thing within the context of the court than it does if you're walking down the street. And that shows us again, I think, how messy the history of gender can be, right? Well, and that's so much of what I think is so valuable and so interesting about this book. Like you mentioned before, like there are these books that are like, here's a history of like queer people in history and here's the biographies. And then because those exist, like you're able to do your book, which delves deeper into less known things. But ultimately, like one of the main things I think that comes across from your book is like, this isn't new. This isn't like, like, what does masculine mean? What does feminine mean? It's like all these different countries, all these different eras. It's not like all of society has been binary until, you know, the year 2020. It's so frustrating when people make that claim. Um, the idea that the redefinition of man and woman is something that has just emerged in the past few years. You don't have to look very far back in history to see how complete rubbish that is. And, you know, that was that, that was why writing this book was felt like a really politically important thing to do, though, to underline that there is nothing new about playing with gender um, that people have always experimented with gender, changed their minds. There's nothing catastrophic about trying something out and then stopping trying it out. People have always also changed the way they lived on a permanent basis, and that's not something that's new either. And that people who are gender non-conforming today and are feeling isolated in our own society are not alone. We have historical community, even if we don't always have present day community. And so it felt politically important to write it in that sense as well. well I'm really glad you brought that up because you mentioned that in the prologue and it was about your your connection you have felt to these figures in the past. And that just made me think of um, Alok, the, the activist. I've heard an interview with them where they said the same thing. And then I had um, Maya Dean, the trans author on this podcast as well. And she said the same thing. So I'm just like, okay, this is such a finding your people, if you don't see them around you in your day-to-day -day life, finding them in history is so, like, can you talk about what that's been like? That means a huge amount to me, yeah. I mean, I came to understanding of my own queer identity through identification with the queer past. It was when I was a teenager growing up in a community that didn't really understand me and knowing that something was complex about my gender but not having the words to understand it you know until I was 13 it was illegal for my teachers to tell me anything about queer people so um it was never going to be the case that I was able to articulate it at a young age um but I did know that I felt an intense connection to and care for queer people in the past and that really sustained me in a time when I didn't have much else and it was then through becoming involved in raising awareness of queer history through the LGBT History Month movement, that I finally was put in a position where I was able to explain to myself what was going on with my own gender and sexuality. And it's really quite moving, actually, to hear you talking about Maya Dean saying the same thing. Um, Maya Dean's work and queer retellings of the Iliad mean a huge amount to me, and it's kind of beautiful that that has been exactly the same for um, other trans people who I've never met. That's really moving to hear. Mm -hmm. No, when I, I read that, I was like, where have I heard that sentiment before? I'm like, oh, here and here. And I think also what your book also gets to is you mentioned earlier about kind of that uh, being born in the wrong body and how that is the experience of some people, but not all people. And so your book is really 
expanding the, um, not the definition, but like, what is trans history? It's not just like, here are people like the Chevalier Dayon, for instance, who was like, was born one way and lived another way. And like, that's kind of uh, the Mad Libs. You talk about what is Jacob Tobia, I think. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Jacob Toby has this brilliant way of explaining what the standard trans narrative, um, like how, how that functions in our culture, um, which is that, you know, you were born, you realized very early on that you didn't um, identify with the gender you were assigned at birth, you then conformed perfectly to the stereotypes of the gender you identified as, um, you struggled with coming out, you came out, you were rejected by your family, then you worked through it some more, eventually you decided to come out fully, your friends accepted you, you um, went through all of the medical transition options you possibly could, um, and then you lived happily ever after as a very conforming binary gendered person and your gender was completely stable and you never kind of experimented with anything or um, experienced any fluidity. And that's exactly how it functions. And that's kind of what works in our society as the narrative of what it means to be really trans. And anything that troubles that, so anything where someone has experienced fluidity or their gender isn't binary or they've not always known or they don't conform to stereotypes, all of those things are seen as not quite as real. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was show how pernicious it is that those ideas in our um, contemporary culture of what it means to be really trans are actually bleeding back into the way we interpret our history as well. So we're looking for that very, very narrow idea of what it means to be really trans in the past. And often we don't find it, in part because that is very unrepresentative of trans experience, and in part because it relies on a lot of kinds of what are considered proof today, like personal testimony, um, which you can't find in the past for a myriad of reasons. So instead, I really wanted to reframe things and say trans history is the history of gender not being fixed or uncontested or tied to the body. It's the history of gender being movable and changeable and challengeable. Um, and that applies whether someone has lived as a different gender for 50 years or for two hours, right? Mm -hmm. It applies just as much to people who go on the stage and perform as a different gender and come off saying, I really felt like I was that person. That still shows us that there is a possibility of experiencing a gender different from the one that you're assigned at birth. And that shows us, therefore, that trans history is everywhere and that the way we think about gender today is so up for debate and always has been. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely, I wanted to expand what we think of as trans history. If we're expanding the definition and we're kind of looking into the past as well, then it's, um, we've been talking a lot about monarchs, you know, people are wealthy people who are able to do this. So there's a book called, I think it's Female Husbands by Jen Mannion, who talks about basically, and you see this in the book as well, it's like sex was not put on birth certificates for a long time. And that's why you don't use like AFAB and AMAB a lot in the book. But like somebody who is not wealthy, who just starts living in a certain way, is not recorded in history necessarily if they didn't, if they weren't arrested, if it, if it didn't challenge somebody. So it's like invisible as well. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. 
So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we're back. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things points that Jen Mannion's book makes so well, I think, is that the stories of female husbands that we have are the tip of the iceberg of what was actually going on. Um, and yeah, one of, I mean, one of the points I wanted to make in the book as well was that in in cases where we do know that there was kind of widespread gender nonconformity, like I talk, for example, about the um, sex workers of early modern Venice who wore breeches and skirts, so a mixture of male and female clothing. Um, there is likely to have been a real diversity of feelings about that gender nonconformity within those groups, right? So if you've got 12,000 courtesans in early modern Venice, some of them are thinking, okay, I just put this on as a uniform to go to work. It doesn't say anything about myself. And that's kind of cool because that shows that women can wear trousers, which is um, a radical thing in that period. Some of them are thinking, okay, um, this makes me feel temporarily a bit weird about my gender, but then when I take it off, it goes away. Some of them are thinking, this is a really good opportunity to express something that actually feels comfortable for me and to wear the clothing that I would like to wear. And that diversity exists, but is not recorded. But unquestionably, is a diversity that we need to respect the possibility of. Um, And especially among marginalized groups like poor people, like sex workers, people whose agency and individuality very often isn't respected. Um, So yeah, I think you're totally right that that invisibility is something we really need to pay attention to. Yeah. And so it's like so much of history, like what I do in the podcast, it's like when you hear about scandalous women, because they do something so extreme that like it, it got written about, but there's so many other which is not to say every other woman living in all these societies was just like docile and minding her own business. It's just, they were never caught or whatever. So can you talk about the very, very opening? um, The first example you have, I think in chapter one about the, the man who is wearing the women's clothes. Oh, were they a man? We don't even know. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, So I start, yes, I start the book um, with this story of a person called John Sullivan, who was um, arrested um, in the 19th century, walking down the street in London, wearing women's clothes. And, John is then sent to court, and in court, it turns out the clothes are stolen. So that's what John is sent to court for, not for gender nonconformity, for theft. And in court says, I was wearing those clothes as a joke. I was very drunk. And I use this story to start the conversation about what we think of as trans history, because 
many people would look at that case and they would say, okay, well, we literally have this person's own voice saying this was a joke. So this is absolutely nothing to do with John's identity. Um, This is just someone dressing up for fun. But if you think about it, first of all, we have a very unreliable context in which um, John is saying those things. It's a, it's not a neutral context. It's a court of law. It's um, a situation where if you say, I was wearing this because actually I really enjoy wearing dresses, that's not going to go down very well. <laughs> um, and then you, it's also a good example for us to think about, okay, what are the possibilities that might be going on here? So maybe we have a man wearing a dress. Well, that's interesting because it tells us um, that when, so when John was caught, John said, this dress is mine. So that tells us that um, a man could consider a dress to be his clothes. So that's interesting. Or maybe John was kind of thinking a dress can be men's clothes, or maybe John was thinking, um, I am a man wearing women's clothes. Those are both interesting possibilities. Or maybe John felt female or neither male nor female for those minutes. Or maybe John always felt like that. And those are all possibilities which tell us interesting stories about the history of gender. And so I wanted to start with that story to say it doesn't matter if we don't know exactly how John felt because all of those possibilities show us that gender is not something that is simple and uncontested. Um, And so all of those possibilities show show us a different kind of trans history. No, and I love that. And it really sets the scene for for the discussion in the book, because it's really it's people like John who are so often not discussed in in a discussion of trans history. It's like, oh, it was just he was just making a joke or whatever. But like whether he would. And that's what, what I mean, like with Catalina de Arauso being like, I was born a woman. It's like, OK, but like <laughs> she's saying that for someone to someone for a reason. John was saying this because he wanted to not go to jail. So he can't just be like, well, it's like saying not this it's not the same thing but similar to like if somebody says under torture yeah no i I did that it's like well well they admitted it it's like "Mm," but they said that for other reasons yeah 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 um and you know um it's it's not the same but it is it is a it is on a continuum i think the you know that carceral context um is a context in which people say things that are not expressions of how they feel but because they're so um affected by the circumstances that they're in and likewise publication in a context where you're fearing a particular kind of censure like catalina was yeah it's a contingent context where you're not free to express yourself without constraints and what i wanted to do with this book was to say okay well given that we don't know exactly what was going on with these people what can we do with that history what does it tell us? Um, And as I said, I think what it tells us is a promise that gender has never been something simple or easy to define or categorize. So, and I love that expansive understanding of it too. Like it really, like I said, like this book, I know I'm going to turn to it again and again, preparing when I've, when I've got some sort of queer history to talk about, just to get the language, just to wrap my head around, like, how am I going to approach this story? You know, how am I going to talk about it? Because yeah, it's it's so complex. And it, like for my podcast in the sense of being like, like it started off as a women's history podcast, but I'm getting into like, I've gotten some queer figures. Like I'm totally open to talking about other things as well. And yeah, it's it's so fascinating to me every time I come across, especially Christina of Sweden, for instance, with someone where I was just like, what the hell do I do with this person's gender presentation? And no one in her era knew what to do about her either. Like it's kind of lovely that you're having the same experience as people who were reacting to Christina back in their lifetime, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's just like what is happening? And because she was a queen, like because she had this power, she was able to really express who she was in a way that so many other people weren't. And there was no there's no tidy answer to her, and she never offered one. So we're just kind of like, well, here's this person who is like maybe intersex and maybe trans and maybe non-binary and maybe a lesbian. It's just like, well, and here's what she did. Like, well. Yeah. And it so often is messy and there so often aren't yeah. answers. Um, and that status is also so often a kind of double-edged sword because yes, you can do what you want, but also it draws a heck of a lot of attention to you as well. Um, and yeah, sometimes when we're dealing with history, what we're dealing with is messiness and that's kind of beautiful, I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's <laughs> that's a great point to, to maybe start wrapping things up as much as I would love to talk to you for hours and hours. 
so your book before we were trans this is available all over the place like i got it in canada it's obviously been released like in north america for a while now um what what else has the response been like to like if this came out you were researched it during covid it came out during covid like <laughs> Yeah, so it came out in the UK in June and in um, North America in um, September, and um, it's been it's been lovely. I mean, I've had some really nice responses, um, particularly in North America. Um, really kind review in the New York Times, but mostly, I mean, the responses that have meant the most have been from trans and queer people writing to me on Twitter and Instagram saying, "I felt really seen by this. Mm-hmm. I love this. This is articulated something that I really wanted someone to articulate." That has been so lovely because I absolutely wrote it for those people, really, um, to be the book that none of us had. Um, there's a great cartoon by the trans cartoonist Sophie LaBelle about being the person you needed when you were younger. And I guess I was trying to do a bit of that with this book as well. And so I'm really touched that you say that it's something you're going to come back to. Mm-hmm. Um, that means a lot. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really hope everybody who listens to this goes out and reads this book because it's so valuable and so important. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That's gone so quickly. It's been lovely to talk to you. Because it bears repeating, the book we were talking about is Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender by Kit Ham, which you can pick up wherever you get your books. There's also an audiobook. There's an ebook of it. If you use the link in the show notes, to purchase a copy using my bookshop.org link, then a little bit of money will go to support this podcast. So that's like a real win all around. Anyway, I'm so grateful to Kit for joining me for this conversation. I'm so grateful for them for writing this book. And yeah, I'm really happy I was able to talk to them and also to share this conversation with all of you. So changing subjects for a moment, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the incredible bravery of the women and girls and other people of Iran who are currently in the midst of uh, a revolution. So since September 17th, 2022, demonstrations have and protests have been happening throughout Iran um, following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. Masa was arrested by Iran's morality police, allegedly for not wearing her hijab properly. So three days after her arrest, Masa Amini died in the hospital after falling into a coma. Police denied mistreating her and claimed she died of a heart attack. Eyewitnesses say that she was beaten by the police. Protesters, with young people, especially young women and including schoolgirls, are demanding an end to conservative laws, including the ones around dress codes, which require any girls over the age of nine to uh, wear a hijab and loose-fitting robes. There are vulgar history listeners, members of the Titsut Brigade, who I've heard from in Iran. Um, one of them told me that this is a feminist revolution. And as a feminist podcast, I wanted to um, acknowledge the incredible bravery and also just share information about what's going on. How can we help? We can pay attention, um, share information about this revolution like I'm doing right now. You can let other people know about what's happening. Stay informed. If you hear about protests near yourself, you can join in, you can organize one if there's not one near you, um, and also donate to Iran-focused human rights organizations. I will put some links in the show notes to some places that you might want to donate money or to go to to learn more about what's going on. My heart is with all the people in these protests in Iran. Again, the bravery is very moving to see. It's been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And... Yeah, my heart is with you all. So, Vogue History, the podcast. Um, if you have suggestions of people you want to you want to hear me talk about on this podcast, especially people from wherever you're from or like where your family is from or like all different countries and cities, places. I love I love knowing that there's Titsa Brigade members all over the world and I really love learning about all of the places where you're from. So you can reach out and suggest people to me at vulgarhistory.com. There's a little button you can click for form to send me a message. You can also send me an email at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. As well, if you're following me on Instagram, um, which you should be because I post lots of value-added content there. I post images of the people we talk about. I post polls to get your opinion about things. Anyway, Instagram at vulgarhistorypod, also a place where you can reach me if you have a message to send me. 
I'm also on Twitter at Vulgar History and more recently on TikTok at Vulgar History. You can also send me messages there. I'm just learning how to do TikToks. I feel like my I'm just baby stepping into it as an aged crone. Um, it's not coming naturally to me, but I'm doing my best. And so if you're on there, it'd be cool if you would follow me. And if you want to support this podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. Uh, so if you go to patreon.com slash Foster that's where if you join the Patreon for as low as $1 Canadian a month, you get early access to ad-free episodes of Vulgar History. If you pledge uh, $5 Canadian or more per month, then you get access to the bonus episodes. So I do So This Asshole, where I talk about men from history. The most recent one I'm currently planning, but by the time you're listening to this, I've probably already posted it. Genghis Khan, who is someone I had, I've never studied before. So I'm excited to see what there is to say about him. Was he an asshole? I don't know. But on that podcast, I'll talk about it. Also, there's the Vulgar Peace Theater episodes with me, Alison Epstein and Lana Wood Johnson, where we talk about costume dramas. Most recently, Queen Margot, the movie of my heart, which is now streaming so you can watch it. And I guess those are all the things. Oh, yeah. And if you go to the merch store, vulgarhistory.store, where you can get your Vulgar History merch just in time for holiday gift giving, you can use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off when you're shopping there. And until next time, my friends, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.